So the topic I have, some of you might have read it, I think it went out. Uh, the topic this evening is, is on chitta, and I'll talk a little bit about what that means um, and why I like this topic so much. Um, so when we think about mindfulness practices, uh, one of the things that's always sort of bothered me and has always haunted me to some degree of practicing over the years, and I never really got a great answer for, is I always was curious about well, when they're talking about the mind, what are they actually talking about? What is this? What is the mind? And I'm pretty convinced my mind's already full. And the mindfulness thing, I'm just really not sure I need. And um, so that's always kind of been something that's been curious to me. And also when you look at the foundations of mindfulness, some of you are probably familiar with these four foundations of mindfulness. It's how it's traditionally taught in the Buddhist tradition, um, sometimes known as Satipatthana is that the, the Buddha does a great job of kind of categorizing experience in these four applications, in these four foundations of, of there's a body um, and its five senses and, and its pain and its pleasure and there's a way in which we can pay attention to our bodies. Uh, and then there are these feelings that arise out of the body, these pleasant, unpleasant, or neither feelings. We can, we can be aware of experience through that, that sort of area, or that pasture sometimes it's called. The third foundation of mindfulness is what I'm going to talk about. It's mindfulness of the mind, or chitta is what it's called. So we have this uh, way of which we can pay attention to, to what the mind is doing. And then there's this fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is a little elusive. There's five categories. Mindfulness of dhammas, or categories of experience, or, or activities, or, or something like that. But one reason I think that this is an interesting topic and it's always been interesting to me is because what we're trying to do in practice, I think clearly, is we're trying to liberate our mind uh, from the forces of, of, of greed, hatred, and delusion. We're trying to liberate our mind from uh, destructive mental states, mental habits, and really the suffering that happens in, in, in the mind and its attitude, its emotion, its thoughts, and all of the things that happens there. And I really think that actually when I look at the, the Buddhist tradition and look at sort of the Buddhist life, it seems like that was really what kind of got him motivated actually, was he really recognized, I think, in a very poignant way that we people, he, all of us to some degree, we suffer in our mind in ways that seem pretty unnecessary. Are you familiar with this? This, this, just like this, just this suffering that happens. It, it seems completely unnecessary. It's certainly not helpful, uh, and it's about a whole range of topics. Usually, uh, the self is the big topic. Usually, um, I'm a person in a world who's not doing so well. In a world, in a person, in a world, in a terrible world, in a bad world, and I'm a bad person in a bad world. And, or I'm a, you know, this this whole on slot. In that, the, I think that he was really curious and. Uh, was really kind of driven by, I wonder if there's something that you can do about that. Rather than just kind of this grit and bear it attitude of like, yes, the mind is suffering and just deal with it. Um, and so when he started to look at sort of his mind, what was going on in the mind, he, he used this word chitta, which uh, sometimes translates as heart mind. And I always had a hard time with this because I, I didn't feel it was a very specific enough example. Um, Mind, heart, mind. What are we talking about, actually? And so I, I've furthered my investigation. This is typically in, in Satipatthana, or the third foundation of mindfulness. The, the basic instruction is to recognize the presence 
or absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So even in the instructions, kind of the way I, I laid it out was like waiting for something to happen is the greedy mind, right? Wanting to add something to the experience that would improve it. Or subtract something from the experience that would improve it. Or this kind of uh, liberated moment of like, oh, I'm here and it's okay to be here. And sort of the chit of the heart mind is, is present and equanimous and it's, and it's uh, okay, it's at ease. It's maybe even liberated. And maybe this liberated experience is actually relatively ordinary. It's not such a big deal. Uh, I know that I've been chasing. I chase things in general. That's kind of what I do. But um, I, I've always had this sort of delusion. Uh, not always. I think it ended quite a while ago, actually. But uh, I, I had it, and I see it happen in people. I think that we get in this attitude where we're going to like practice Dharma, and we're going to practice well. And at some moment, there's going to be this event. right? Something's going to happen. And then everything on the other side of that event is going to be mustard. It's going to be like dead easy. Do you have this delusion in your mind? I'm, I'm not really sure that that's going to happen for you, actually. <laughs> and so, but that's sort of the, that's the chase, right? That's the setup. That's enlightenment. That's awakening. That's kind of where it's all heading, maybe. And so I think that this idea of being awake or whatever, is actually a fairly ordinary experience where I think you probably have many, 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 many moments in the day where it's actually happening and you just don't recognize it as that. So when we look at sort of what is this mind, um, the Buddha really kind of, it gets unpacked a lot further later on in this teaching called the Abhidharma, which I've been studying for a long time. And it's a lot of times taught as this complicated thing, but it's actually really not that complicated. And so when the Buddha talks about chitta or heart-mind, he really talks about it in three ways. Uh, and the first way is actually he talks about the mind or chitta as, as an agent, which is just a part of the mind that just knows an object, very basic, the knowing that this is, this is the striker, this is the bell, you know, this is a building. It's just that part of the mind which knows an object and recognizes an object in its most basic form. The other way that it's talked about is actually as an instrument in that what the chitta does, this, this cognitive process, is it, is it organizes other mental factors to make sense of things. So it organizes, essentially what we would call the aggregates. It organizes shapes and colors and forms and feelings and perceptions and, <coughs> and inclinations and it kind of gives you a quick and dirty analysis in every moment uh, of sort of what's happening. Have you noticed that your mind's always kind of telling you what's going on? with varying degrees of accuracy. <laughs> and that's what it does. It's an instrument-like quality. And it just kind of tells us what's going on. It organizes other mental factors and kind of is how we make sense of the world, which is actually really quite valuable. So it's not all bad, uh, but sometimes the information we're getting is not great. Uh, and a lot of times it's certainly not very helpful. And the third way, and the way that I want to talk about it a little bit here for going forward, is he talks about it as being the entire cognizing process itself. So this idea that I really actually like, that, that gets us away from this present moment and we have to like park our attention there. But actually what's happening is the mind is arising and passing away in every moment. So in every single moment, the mind comes together, it falls away, it comes together, it falls away. But it happens so quick, we just kind of have this steady stream and then we kind of conveniently park a narrative on top of it, and we just think that that's how it is. 
We just, we just take it. For, we take the mind's data, if you will, for face value. We don't question it. We just make assumptions. We go, okay, well, this person gave me a dirty look uh, at the coffee shop, and that person doesn't like me very much, and every time I come into this coffee shop, this person gives me a dirty look, and actually, I'm not going to come here anymore because I'm tired of this dirty look from this person who doesn't like me. It's like completely randomly made up. Right? This is what you do all day long. And so really I think a lot of what we're doing in mindfulness and in this mindfulness of mind or mindfulness of chitta is we're actually uh, trying to uh, maybe question that or maybe look at that in a different way or kind of, you know, and so that's a lot of times what we would call investigation or this part of Vipassana where we're actually looking at what's coming up and we're saying, hey, I'm not totally, maybe not. Maybe this information is not uh, accurate. So there's an, there's an in, inquisitive aspect to it. And maybe I should have given a disclaimer, I'll give a little bit of one. It's actually really all Buddhist traditions talk about chitta, bodhicitta, and the Mahayana. In Tibetan, they really get into it. And they actually have different versions of it. But I'm really actually just pulling from this Theravada sort of nugget here. So, so if you're familiar with this term, I might be speaking in a way that's a little different. And the reason I say that is because in the earliest Buddhist tradition, um, Chitta not always so good. That a lot of times we talk about bodhicitta. Chitta, hatred is a chitta. Jealousy is a chitta. Envy is a chitta. So we have to be careful that we just don't make this assumption that chitta is this thing that we need to cultivate. It's not uh, always so great. And so that there's different kinds of chittas. And of course the goal is to, uh, to develop the wholesome or, or the constructive or the useful. Oh, develop the awakening factors and try to let go of the hindrances and sort of a game that we're playing here. But one of the reasons I like this is because the more that I've kind of practiced in this way, I like to think of chitta actually as a behavior. And when I watch my mind, it's really been very helpful to me in a lot of my trainings in clinical and in behavioral health anyway, is kind of watching how my mind behaves. And I see a lot of very unacceptable behavior in my mind much of the time. All right, so we can kind of think of this process. If the mind is arising and passing away in every moment, based on our experience in life, we take on different kinds of sort of mental behaviors, different mental attitudes, um, based on a whole range of things. And it's not like fixed. We're not just stuck with it, right? We're not just like stuck with whatever crappy chitta we've cultivated and in in our practice is just trying to make the best of it. Right? This has kind of been uh, what they talk about in neuroscience, this neuroplasticity, the mind is... Um, it, it, all, all of what I'm talking about can be recognized, can be altered, can be changed, can be overcome through practice. I think that's very encouraging to me. That's a very cur- encouraging idea is to see this as like any... Like I can change any behavior, right? I can change... Usually we think of behavior as physical behavior. Eating is a behavior, smoking is a behavior, drinking is a behavior, all these things. But to really actually back it up and to, and to think of your mind as a sort of behavioral system that you actually have some influence and agency over has been really, really helpful to me. And so when we think about what, what does that look like, I think... Um, and I'll talk about more, more about this on Sunday if you guys come to my uh, workshop, so I'm setting you up a little bit. But um, one of the things that we talk about in, our, in Western, uh, the, 
I don't need like the word Western, but in kind of psychological terms, in modern psychological terms, is this word cognitive, right? You probably know this word cognitive. And actually, I think really what the Buddha is talking about is actually our cognitive process. And so we, we think about cognitive science, contemplative science, that there's a way in which um, it's almost a more accurate term because mind is just too big of a term. But in our cognitive process, what's going on within the domain of our, of our thoughts, the attitudes, sometimes we would even include the emotion. And so, of course, the, 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 the more intensity of the emotion, I don't know about you, but my mind behaves worse and worse the, with the heightened sense of emotion that goes on with me. Like, if I'm really, really angry, like really, really angry, and I get angry a lot more than I would like to admit, I really actually have to just know that my mind, all of the information I'm getting from my mind when I'm really, really angry is pretty bogus. Blaming, judging, uh, revenge-seeking, uh, the injustice of the universe, the not fair. It's like I have a whole drop-down menu of stuff that just like I just know when I'm angry. I'm like, yeah, here it comes, here it comes. I'm going to assassinate everybody in the room because I'm angry. And so the great thing about this, I think, also, is this also, with mindfulness practice, is we can learn to kind of monitor this. We can kind of watch. And I think, to me, that's been really helpful because when I think about the foundations of mindfulness, and I've been practicing them for a long time, um, I actually learned this from you, Chris, many years ago. When you think about the Four Noble Truths and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the idea that dukkha sort of is in the body, craving is in the feelings, and you know, liberation is in the mind. So when I, and especially off the cushion, one of my big practices has been is just really learning how to keep an eye on this cognitive process with, with a degree of objectivity, so it's not my fault. It's just sort of my mind's behavior. And I think that's also, I, I have found that to be a little bit actually, dare I say the word fun, but a, a more exciting, a more fun, a more uh, where the practice sometimes feels a little bit more alive. Because it's not this kind of, uh, I've been practicing with some people with some other traditions in the last couple of years. Um, some of the trainings I've done, we've been with people from all different uh, Buddhist traditions, which I've never done before, and it's quite quite fun actually, but uh, some of the people in the Tibetan tradition call what we do here grim vipassana. They're like, oh, you're one of those grim vipassana guys. <laughs> you just sit there and like watch the dukkha come and go. And I was like, hey, that's a little harsh, don't you think? And I was like, yeah, that is kind of what I do. <laughs> you know, where we kind of can get, I know that I, we can kind of get stuck or we can kind of get to the point where I even get there too. I'm like, where is this all heading? I sit down for 30 minutes, I watch my breath, I watch my body, I, I, but, you know, is this, is this going somewhere? And I find that when I got into this, uh, and a lot of this actually is off the cushion for me, which I think it's great in a drop-in class to talk about, is really getting into this, this way of, like, um, watching what's going on in, in, in this chitta as a behavior. Right? And not... And also, I think this is really hard that we have to be careful that we don't do it. It seems to be Americans do it a lot. Is, and the Buddha really actually warns against this. Is a lot of times we think that we're bad or wrong because of a difficult or unskillful or unwholesome mind state. We're so identified. 
with that. And, and so much in, in the instructions around this third foundation is to know the presence and absence but not to think that greed, hatred, and delusion are derogatory. And if I have anger or hatred or jealousy in my mind, I'm bad and wrong for having that in my mind. This is where I think the clinging in the story gets really, really tight. And I think where people can kind of become these, even on the spiritual bypass side of it, and you might have met some of these sort of like, some Buddhist people you might have encountered who just act as if like everything is just great and awesome and like no more suffering for me. I never get angry. Like it's just not okay to have a negative thought or a judgmental thought. And I think that really, really sets this up because what I've noticed is that a lot of, a lot of my life, a lot of my suffering actually has been around uh, taking what's going on in my mind, A, so personally, um, and then feeling like there, there's something inherently wrong with me because a lot of the stuff that my mind chucks up is frankly pretty terrible. Uh, and I still see this a lot. And I don't know that it's necessary. First of all, it has not been helpful to do any of those things. But I really think the Buddha is really trying to get us to, to not to, to stop, but actually to recognize. And a lot of what goes on in, in practice is this idea of uh, recognize, which is actually to recognize. And so every time we recognize something, we're becoming more and more and more familiar with kind of our mental behavior. And if we start to create this attitude or this kind of bad habit of meditation where anytime we are confronted with some sort of poor behavior in the mind, we kind of push back from it. We might actually have some denial against it, like, oh my God, that's not really happening. Uh, we think that we're bad or wrong for having it. We blame somebody else for installing it. Right? And we, we actually miss out on this really great opportunity to practice with it. It's almost this radical self-honesty where we can just sort of be very honest with ourselves about some of this chitta that arises in the mind. And there's a whole range of it. Greed, hatred, and delusion are just the tip of the iceberg. But you know, envy, jealousy, uh, blaming, these subtle ways in which uh, we, we suffer in, the, in these domains. And we justify why we're doing it. And I don't know that it's something, sometimes people talk about this and I find it to be troubling, this idea that it's uprooted, that we're going to like, again, practice well and that's just, gonna, that's just going to go away. Maybe if you're going to shave, uh, shave your head and put on the brown robes and go, go that route, maybe. But I think for most of us, it's not going to happen. Right? And so then we get into this kind of bad meditator's habit of like, every time we see something arise in the mind that we don't like or that we think we shouldn't have or we think it's bad or wrong or any of these things, it's almost like we, we re, re-harm that. We almost perpetuate that kind of not wanting, not wanting. And I hear this with people I work with a lot. I'm so tired of this. I've been working on this for years. I'm so tired of working on this. I'm so don't want this to be the way it is. And instead of learning about this practice or learning about this part of their minds, it's just like aversion and resistance all the time. So not only is this thing arising in the mind that's creating suffering, there's just this intense, almost existential 
Like, I just need my mind to not be doing that anymore. I'm so tired of it. Right? And, then, and, and even in that stance, it's like, there's no learning. There's no discernment. There's no way in which, there's actually no cooperation. Which is actually the basis for compassion. So, you know, at least just what Charles Darwin says, that he's a pretty smart guy is this idea that like one thing that really, really helped me in this practice was actually having a cooperative attitude towards aspects of my mind that are just really hard to look at, that are just really, really violent or even you know, sexist and racist and just these, these ways in which my conditioning has been conditioned is completely and totally not my fault. But anytime, the uglier it gets, right, the more denial I want to have about it. And denial is not, just so you know, it's not a liberation-based <laughs> practice. <laughs> that one doesn't go anywhere. Right? But it's so hard to not do that, especially when we see some of these things that are just really like, they come out of nowhere, and they kind of like almost getting hit with a baseball bat sometimes, it feels like. So there's a way in which it's this cooperation, which I think is really like, for me, in a self-compassion practice, the really beginning of that was when I just wanted to really kind of go into that and say, like, oh, it's like, like, what happened to me? What kind of world did I grow up in that my mind was actually conditioned to go to these, like, really dark places? And, like, so quickly. Like, oh, man, like, my mind and my heart and my body have been through some pretty gnarly things. And as a result of that, this kind of chitta, this, this activity, this way of perceiving things has, has been the result of that. And so how much, how much can I actually learn about that? Sometimes there's this idea of like sitting in the fire with our experience. It's like, you know, eyeball to eyeball coming into contact with just our karma or the way things have been. But the more I've done this, actually, I think what happens slowly over time is, A, as a result of taking it less personally, um, one thing that has decreased is the emotional charge that I, that I used to receive from that. Right? So with, with more cooperation and more recognition and more sort of like witness or, or impersonal attitude about it, I don't get as sad or angry or, or even shame. I don't know if you're familiar with this emotion, shame, but it's not a particularly pleasant one. And a lot of times we can feel a lot of shame over things that arise in our mind. What kind of a person would even have a thought like that? Right? So the emotional charge decreases when we actually can kind of come to terms with some of the things that happen in our mind. And emotions is a whole other a whole other category. I'll talk about that more on Sunday. But one thing about emotions, I think that, that I could say that's probably important is that we're actually we're not always emotional. Whereas the mind, the chitta, is sort of every moment there's kind of a mental activity. But the emotion isn't always present. Emotion is sometimes present. And I can assure you, from my experience and people I've talked to, when emotion is present, the chitta gets even more challenging to work with almost all the time. Yeah. So any of that kind of mental behavior, that cognitive behavior that we see when, 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 emotion, when someone pours a little bit of emotion into the mix, the volume gets, can, can get a little bit, little bit wonky. 
So what can we do about this, right? Other than just kind of be like, oh wow, that's more bad news from the Dharma teachers, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of things that I, that I have found to be very, very helpful, and there's really three that I think have been really, really the most important to me. Is in my practice, um, is actually developing heart practices, developing metta, loving kindness and compassion, to really kind of uh, create an attitude and a space internally that that cr- gives some permission. You know, that gives them, like, it's okay, I'm at ease, I care about you. Um, and and, and there, there seems, for me, there's been a link between some of the, the more, the aspects of my mind that are most difficult to look at usually were installed through some really, really painful event or experience. And that makes it easier for me to have compassion for myself. A lot easier. The other thing that has been really, really helpful that works really good on the go, uh, taking a page from sort of the cognitive science and this work that we do in, in cultivating emotional balance, one of the mindfulness practices that we have, they call it sort of a fancy word, but I can break it down a little bit easier. It's called a cognitive reappraisal. And cognitive re- reappraisal, also Dan Siegel talks about this. He talks about a perspective taking. But cognitive reappraisal is when we come into a situation uh, that's a challenging situation and our mind kind of gives us that bad data I was talking about, we actually can reappraise a, a situation. We can reappraise a person, a situation, a scenario, an event, and just kind of go, okay, like, kind of trying to look at it again. And be like, and especially if it's with another person, we can be like, okay, I wonder what her perspective is on this. And every time we can kind of cognitive, cognitively reappraise a situation, it takes the intensity of it down a little bit. And usually, actually, by the third one, if you can do this, by the third appraisal, it's starting to get somewhere in the domain of accuracy. You're like, oh. Like, for example, right? Like, say you have a really, really good friend that's going to meet you for lunch, and they totally blow you off, and you're totally pissed, right? You're totally pissed. You've got a whole story going about, like, you, how they're not really a good friend anyway, and, you know, you no, you actually don't have any good friends, and there's really nobody in this world that's even worth hanging out with. I don't even know why I make lunch schedules with anybody. I mean, it's just, everybody's just a fucking big disappointment, or whatever your favorite story is around that. And then you find out three or four hours later that their car broke down, or something happened, and they couldn't make it. And then what happens? Your whole system goes, you just relax. Oh, oh okay, this, like, this automatic forgiveness happens, right? But at the time, you couldn't cognitively reappraise. You just, you just got bad data and you bought it. Right? And, and you maybe lost three or four hours of your time making a story and a narrative about that whole thing because you weren't able to perspective take. You weren't able to, to look at the situation over and over again. There's a term, I forget what the poly term is, but part of our practice is to repeatedly look at. So to look at it. And then to look at it again. And then to look at it again. And then to look at it again. Just kind of repeatedly looking at something and to see if there's a different way to look at it or there's a different perspective on that. This is a really good thing to do on the go. I have found to be a very, very good thing to do on the go. And really, I think uh, the, the third thing I'll say about that, so really there's a, there's a component of really compassion. I think that's a big part of this equation. And, and compassion is actually in and of itself a type of chitta. Um, and then there's this kind of reappraising. And then there's this way, I think, in, in terms of like a daily sitting practice, one thing that's been really, again, dare I say, fun, 
uh, as a teacher, it's been really important to me to have this practice, and also working with students. I get really, really happy for students that I work with when they get to a place where their sitting practice is largely this practice, this kind of uh, third foundation of mindfulness practice, where they're actually, you've developed enough of attention skills, you know, uh, and I don't think you actually need that much developed attention skills to do this, but you're able to sort of be with the breath. You're able to not just get distracted all the time. You're actually able to sit in present. And you're actually, to some degree, your practice is kind of this, you know, monitoring this, of like kind of watching the chitta, watching the behavior. Uh, I'm planning, okay. I'm judging, I'm sort of watching what the behavior is in a way where I can sort of look at it, I can see it without getting caught up in it, and then I can return back to to like a primary anchor, the body and the breath, and I can kind of see it, okay. I can name it, I can recognize it, and I can turn. And the one thing about this is so good is you realize your mind only has like three or four decent tricks. It's like a shell game at the back of the bus. You think your mind has all these elaborate ways, but it's really actually not that, it does probably three or four things maybe that get you. It's just got different versions of the same thing. It's got a couple themes and the variation on those themes is endless. We just get sucked, we just get busted on the same old tricks over and over and over again. So when we can see like in a sitting practice where we can just kind of begin to watch things like mental states, state of mind, uh, content, uh, distracted, um, confused, awareness, mindfulness, being able to just watch these states of mind, being able to watch the attitude of the mind, which is sort of a state and then what we add to it. We have these attitudes of mind and really these two big ones, craving and aversion, we usually call them, but I really feel them. It's just like this anticipation, this really impatient, really wanting. I have a son who's six, and so I just watch him do this all day. Like, we're on vacation right now, and he's like still waiting to be on vacation. And he's like, when are we going to like do this thing? I'm like, dude, we're in it. This is it. We're in the car, driving to Boston. Welcome to your vacation. He's like, this is not what I thought. Like, if it's not pleasant number seven, he's pissed. You know, and if he, kids, you see this, and they're just, they're just wanting the thing to be the thing, and you're like, you're in it. This is it. It's like, wow, this is, where's the iPad? This sucks. You know, and, and this is a really, really tough one to break from because there's a lot of energy in that anticipation. It's wanting. And just watching this, you know, who sometimes called craving, which I think is not a great term, but it's kind of... Uh, you can just watch that. And then the, the flip side of that, of course, is this uh, waiting for something to go away, this, this aversion, this not wanting, where it's just like, you're, you're just sitting there, you're like, okay, when this is over, I'll be okay. Have you ever had that thought? When this is over, I'll be okay, but until this is over, I'm not okay. <laughs> like, why would you make that choice? Why would you decide to go with that one? Like, I'm just gonna just hate this until it's done, and that's what I've just decided to do, right? I do it all the time, that's why I can talk about it. And I, and I just like, I'm like, when this is over, I'm going to be so happy. And then it's over, I just pick up the next thing to wait to be over, and that's my life, but that's my fault. That's, my, that's a whole different other conversation. Right. And then it's just this kind of looking of like, okay, am I here? You know, am I really? And I find that these is maybe we call it liberation, or we call it being awake, or whatever we call it, this mindfulness, this... This, this kind of, just really these two qualities of being present and sort of being okay with what's happening. So this mindfulness and equanimity, this mindfulness and equanimity. It doesn't, it's not, I don't think it's this big epic thing. 
I would argue that every human being on the planet has had thousands of those moments. They just didn't have a name for it, or they weren't watching for it. So I think one of the things that, one, uh, that I've really tried to kind of learn how to pay attention to is that moment of like, I'm actually, I'm okay right now. I'm here and it's okay. Because a lot of times that's when we go to these other mental states. We go to the distraction or the aversion or we go to distraction with this guy right here. Anybody have one of these? You know, it's like I could be in a totally chill mood hanging out and I'll pick up my phone for no reason and just scroll through endless feeds of digital garbage. Right? And I missed out. So we miss out, I think, a lot on these experiences of this ordinary kind of awakened moment where the chitta sort of behaved, the dog's behaved, he's just sitting right here. You know, he's not over the neighbor's fence, knocking over garbage cans, you know, it's just like, but we don't think to pay attention to that so much. So part of my encouragement is to see if you can begin to learn how to pay attention to that. And to not think uh, that this practice is about some sort of epic insight or kind of experience in which everything kind of reveals, the nature of the universe reveals itself to you. Probably not going to happen, and even if it does, like, whatever, it's not going to pay your mortgage or, like, help you in your relationship or it's not going to really be that great. And then it's just going to be that moment that you had. I used to stack up those moments on retreats. Like, there was that one day where I just had it all, so I just had it all I had it! <laughs> now I don't. There's a disappointment. So now I'm cultivating disappointment over a moment that happened like 20 years ago that I don't have anymore. Why would I do that? Because I'm, I'm not, I've not learned, I've not uh, trained myself to sort of pay attention to this, this aspect of mind. So I think that's all I'm going to say about that. I could go on and on and I know we're running out of time.